0: This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this is episode five of season two, Making Art is Intuitive. <sighs> Hello. I'm going to be posting this a day late. Um, thank you for rolling with things. I made the decision over the weekend to pause all of the patrons subscriptions on the Patreon until I can get my act together. I haven't been posting regularly. I haven't been sending things to you. If you have been a patron, thank you. I am. So yeah, uh, when you, when you get a notification about that, that's why I really would like to figure out a, a meaningful way to use Patreon because I suspect it will be a really cool way to support the podcast in the future. But for now, um, the podcast is a little bit you know, sporadic. It's all over the place. Um, part of the reason is because I um, started the podcast in the spring of last year, and then around July, everything got weird. <laughs> for those of you that Uh, follow me on social media. I was having some corneal erosions in my right eye. They started in July and I ended up having a few surgeries that ended up solving the problem by November. I'm not going to tell you about corneal erosions because it's pretty gnarly. I've discovered some people don't love hearing about eye stuff, (laughs) but they... (laughs) The good news is the uh, erosions definitely don't mess with your vision. Um, It was not a fun experience. And then I was very grateful when that was um, healed and worked through. And it definitely put a damper on recording podcast episodes. And then in November, early December, I'm sorry, we discovered that we have a little bean on the way in August of this year. So I, I put up on the newsletter that we're expecting a little baby, but it has been wild trying to navigate a regular podcast during all of that time. And so uh, I, I share the personal information just because I consider you all family, but also because um, that's why the, the Patreon is going down for a little bit. And in the meantime, you can support this podcast in the ways that you have been, and I know that you all have been, sharing it with people that you think would be interested, giving it a five-star review, um, engaging with posts on social media. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That It does so much more than you know. <laughs> and, um, I want to, uh, before we dive in, this post is sponsored by the Intuitive Drawing On Demand Art Series that we are releasing on Monday, February 8th. The Registration closes Sunday, February seventh at midnight, um, or eleven fifty nine PM. If we're being <laughs> specific, this is a five week on demand course. Which, for those of you unfamiliar with that term, it, it means that it's take it at your own pace. Um, you know, get the material, look at it when you want. It's yours forever. Um, the material will be le- re- be released once a week for five weeks, and it is full of video and audio and workbook modules on everything that I've cultivated over the last 20 years in regards to intuitive art making. And I wanted to do a podcast episode about it today because I talk about intuitive art making on social media all the time, but this has become a real focus for Secret Sauce and for my art business And so I want to tell you some stories about how I first began to delve into this idea that what we make is intuitive. And before I do that, though, I think we need to talk a little bit about how art became less intuitive and more analytical. And I'm certainly not making the case in this episode that analyzing art or making art from a logical, analytical um perspective is a bad thing it's not a bad thing um analysis and logic is wildly important and for a long time especially in sort of classical veins of art making when we when we think of like you know white european styles of art making this sort of logical analysis became this very narrow conception of art and anything that kind of fell outside of this very um, analytical realistic representational style of making was considered low art or not art at all, right so if you're Michelangelo carving the most realistic representation of a male nude <laughs> that you can you know even conceive of that's high art right like that was that was the conception of art for for a long time and in some ways really still is and you know things that were abstract or expressive um non-representational were considered a mess (laughs) for a long time and it's why in some ways Vincent Van Gogh and some of the other artists in his time period became so incredibly famous later, um, because during their lifetimes, they really challenged this idea that art had to be um, analytical and logical. What if I painted feeling? What if I painted the energy of a space, right? Starry Night is the energy of a night sky? Oh my gosh. Um, But while he was alive, he was criticized um, deeply for his perspective on art making. And Um, because of his and um, other post-impressionists and impressionists like him because of their sort of commitment to pushing art forward in this way we really do um, revere them today but you know in their lifetimes it was really challenging and so it's been relatively recent you know like Van Gogh lived at the end of the twenty, uh, the end of the nineteenth century, early twentieth century, right? Oh, I'm an art major who's not sure about that. <laughs> I'm not a facts and figures kind of person, y'all know. <laughs> but Van Gogh's life was was relatively recent, you know. Prior to some of those movements, um, intuitive art making was really not considered art making for a long time. You know, if you have to go back. Um, pretty far into history to find intuitive styles of making. I would even argue back into cave paintings. Cave paintings are the ultimate intuitive art making. Um, yes, they're representational. Obviously, there's symbols of people and animals and tools and things that they put on these cave walls, but the representation themselves were not realistic at all. They were incredibly intuitive. And I want to make an argument today um, that we are, at our very core, wired to make art intuitively. That logic, logical and analytical styles of making came later, and that there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. The problem becomes, especially in the art world, um, what happens when we say that intuitive making isn't valid? What does that do to people? Um, I would argue that historically it's really cut people spiritually off from themselves intuitive art making is spiritual it is a spiritual practice people that make intuitively will tell you that it is almost magical sometimes what they experience when something is coming through them so let's talk about this so i want to so i didn't always view art this way although i think that i subconsciously did i just didn't consciously view it this way until I became a school teacher. And I was um, part of my school district's art curricula was to incorporate art from local um, artists in the third grade curricula. And I, this particular year, was drafting up lesson plans for third grade and I happened to notice that in Cleveland, which was not too far from my school district at the time in Ohio, the um, city hall there was having it had invited Tibetan monks to come and make sand mandalas. Um, if y'all are unfamiliar, these things are wildly amazing. Austin actually invited some Tibetan monks back in like 2012, 13, I think, to to their city hall also to do um, live art making. And it's pretty cool, I actually, when they came to Austin, I got to actually try my hand at this process. It's wild. (laughs) Basically, these pieces, you can Google them, they're um, circular in nature. They are full of iconography and symbolism. They're highly symmetrical, I would say all of the time. Um, And they're made with colored sand. And the tools that these monks use are these long, I don't know how to describe them, they're these long metal rods that are cone-shaped. The tip is very narrow and then it widens out to like a fatter base. It looks like a really long skinny Christmas tree (laughs) that's made out of metal. And then on the surface of this cone is etched into the metal these little grooves. And Basically, what you do is you pick up sand <laughs> onto these, um, into these like grooves on this metal tool, and and you hold this tool in your like left hand, or at least I did, and then in your right hand there's this smaller cylindrical metal rod, and you rub it back and forth over the the grooves on this cone-shaped tool, and the sand slowly funnels down out of the tip of the tool into this very precise line or mark or shape onto the artwork in colored sand. It's It sounds really hard. It's actually less hard and more patience. (laughs) It was so tedious, and I use the word tedious because, like, It's a big deal for me to use that word because I love tedious styles of mark making and painting and clay and all the things. This process was slow. There's no way to rush this process. And so these Tibetan monks who had come to Cleveland to do this thing, and I was really excited to share this with the third graders because it was local, um, and I constructed a whole lesson plan. making sand mandalas with eight-year-olds. And the, the way that I decided to do it was to focus on the ways that Tibetan monks were um, committed to processed, process-focused, intuitive styles of making. That the point of making a mandala was all about the journey and all about the process and all about the meditation that happened. And (laughs) for those of you unfamiliar, these monks will spend, I don't know, like I would say often a week or two painstakingly, you know, laying down this beautiful, intricate sand artwork. It'll be up for a little while on display. And then ultimately there's a ceremony before the monks leave where they blow this thing away in the wind. And the kids were like, mind blown by this, like you know, and I think a lot of adults are too, to, it's, it's almost anti-capitalist. No, it's not almost anti-capitalist. It is anti-capitalist to spend so much time and energy on a product and then destroy it, you know? And I remember at the time using the comparison for these eight-year-olds of playing a video game, and a lot of them understood this, or reading a, a good book, like a long book, like Harry Potter. And I would say, have you ever like started a video game or started a really good long book and you finally either beat the game or you get to the end of the book and you're sad? Um, Which is weird, right? Because isn't the point to get to the end (laughs) and the kids got that, right? Like that the fun is in the journey and it is sad when it's over. And what would happen if we approached our making that way? Um, So I had constructed this whole lesson and I told these eight-year-olds, we're going to make sand mandalas or we're going to do it the way the monks do it. And then we're going to take them out to the playground and we'll blow them away. And they were initially pumped. (laughs) Initially, I say. Um, So the problem was me if I'm being honest. I thought that I was ready to create a lesson around process-focused art making, but I wasn't. I had been schooled. Um, interestingly, I had been schooled in a pretty progressive undergraduate art education program that was incredibly process-focused. Um, and still, there was so much um, analysis and product focus baked under the surface of even that program right that the value of an art program especially when you're a public school art teacher is still largely based on the the quality of the product that the students are putting out there um, and I was really feeling this pressure my first year of teaching which was the year that I did these sand mandalas with these kids Um, I had come in with lots of ideas about process-focused art making, and the kids were having a fucking blast, excuse my language. But the art (laughs) wasn't, from a product standpoint, really great. It wasn't. Um, And hanging it on the wall in the hallways felt weird. Um, Showing it to parents during um, conferences felt weird. I was absolutely not imagining that people weren't digging it. They weren't. And I was really starting to feel this product pressure, especially because it was almost halfway through the school year and I was going to be preparing in like four months for the spring annual art show. And, you know, these things were these beastly, you know, undertakings where we would put kids artwork all over the hallways of the entire school. And I... Was starting to feel that kind of capitalist market economy pressure oozing into my teaching of like this stuff has to look good or these parents are going to think I'm a shit teacher, you know? And without even realizing it, I constructed a mandala making lesson on Tibetan monks that was totally product focused. And when I say product focused, this is what we did. The kids came in on the first day. Um, I had set out all of these trays of colored sand. Each of the kids got their own personal art tray. And then on the art tray was taped a piece of white paper with a round circle, just like a mandala. And the kids got glue. And then we talked about all kinds of product-focused tools and techniques of making a mandala. So we talked about symmetry, and we talked about asymmetry, and we talked about choosing colors and color schemes, and we talked about taking our time and laying the sand down in a way that was neat, right? This is all technical product focused stuff. And they had a blast. There's nothing wrong with product focused teaching or product focused art making at all. It just matters when you're trying to gauge the outcomes that you want. And what I had wanted at the time was for the kids to immerse themselves in the joy of making this stuff and then the release of letting it go. You know, that that I, I thought eight-year-olds would be ready to do that. And they would have been <laughs> if I had truly made the project about process. Because True process-focused making is much easier to release. And the reason why is because you've achieved the goal already through the making of it. And so letting go of the product isn't as big of a deal because you've already gotten out of the process what you wanted, and that was the joy. But we weren't focusing on that. We were focused on making a beautiful sand artwork and, not surprisingly, The kids got super attached to their artworks because that was the focus. The focus was on the artwork, not on them. (laughs) So (laughs) the day comes. I'm so excited. The kids are so excited at first, right? They come into class that day. They're like ready to do it. It's my first third grade class. I'm going to be blowing these things away with. I had been painstakingly stacking these trays to keep the sand from moving around. I still don't know what possessed me to to think I could do this. I was a brand new teacher. That's that's what it was. (laughs) So these eight-year-olds carefully carry their trays like what was I even thinking having them carry them outside and we line up at the door and already some of the sand mandalas are starting to move and get messy and this is when the sadness starts to descend because now the kids are seeing these things that they've just spent two weeks working on kind of getting messed up and we're heading out to the playground and we're we're walking outside the front door of the school to go around to the side um where the playground was and we made it maybe a few steps outside and the kids i i had a few kids start to cry <laughs> that was that was the uh a level of attachment to their work and it might sound like this is something that's isolated to just little children but it's not i've been teaching adults for a long time here in Austin for about eight years. And I've seen adults cry in our classes. I've seen adults leave our classes in the middle and never come back. Um, Product-focused art making can be terribly emotional because all of your investment is in this product. And if it doesn't work, it's like you're not working. Like... (laughs) pieces of you are getting destroyed because you've funneled all of your love into this thing. And now the thing is, is getting destroyed. Right? So we backpedaled immediately. I was not trying to traumatize eight year olds. My first, first year of teaching, I brought them back inside. I set this sand, this like messy pile of sand trays aside. And I apologized to them. And I said, you know what? We're going to try this project different next week and I spent a few days reflecting on how I had just totally failed <laughs> that, and that was and that was okay like how could I reconstruct this lesson that, so that it was truly process focused so the next week these kids come in and instead of using sand I set out prismacolor pencils and I used black match paper Um, For those of you that are ever interested in doing a mandala, I highly recommend using these materials. My aunt, who is a psychologist, often would do mandala-making workshops using these materials, and they are glorious. Um, First of all, black match paper is this rich, velvety, acid-free black paper. Um, So y'all know, if if you're kids and you remember using construction paper, black construction paper is... When it's brand new, it's still mostly gray. (laughs) And then if you put that crap in the sun for even a day, it fades. Um, Black match paper is rich and velvety and it lasts forever. Um, And Prismacolor pencils were a treat that these eight-year-olds had never had experience uh, working with before. I had a really small set, a classroom set, and I felt like, okay, this is a special moment I want the kids to immerse themselves into the process, so we're going to use some professional-grade materials. And Prismacolor pencils are beautiful, especially on black paper. They're creamy and oily and vibrant, uh, much more so than Crayola. Uh, And so already we're starting off on this amazing magical foot, right? The kids sit down in front of these um, pieces of match paper, and I've drawn a circle on each of them, just like before. And I said, okay, let's try this different today. And I put on some some quiet music that had no words. And I said, I want you just to look at your jar of colored pencils in front of you. And I want you to talk to the colored pencils in your head. And the kids, <laughs> they looked at me, um, understandably, like I was completely nuts. And they're like, What? <laughs> And I said, no, for real. I said, supplies talk back, but they don't have mouths, so they can't use words. So this is how they're going to communicate with you. As you look at the colored pencils and ask them which one wants to go first, you'll know because you'll feel really excited about the color that is talking to you. That the, the art supplies don't talk through words, they talk through feelings. So go ahead and I want you to just practice what this feels like. It, it I was like, it might feel a little weird because I know we've never done that before and I know a lot of grown-ups don't talk about things this way. I was like, but um, you're going to discover that all kinds of objects communicate. It's just not with words. And you know what was so wild was that this explanation seemingly made total fucking sense to these kids like they just were they were just like oh yeah cool and what I realized later was that the kids talk with inanimate objects through their feelings all the time and I was literally just giving voice to this experience that they all were having every day anyway <laughs> and it took them almost no time to pick their first color and they did it seriously like they they contemplated this jar of <laughs> Of Prismacolor pencils and they each pick their first color. And I say, okay, I said, now we're going to have a conversation with your artwork. And I was like, I know the artwork doesn't exist yet on your paper, but it exists inside of you already. And so instead of um, making a mark that I teach you about, I want you to, on a piece of scratch paper, I want you to try all different kinds of symbols and shapes and lines. And the symbols and shapes and lines will talk to you in the same way the colored pencil did. And you'll know the first mark you're supposed to make by how you feel. If you feel really good making it, then I want you to put that shape or line or mark on your black match paper first. And I want you to put it wherever feels best, because that's where the artwork wants you to put it. The artwork will communicate with you through your feelings. And then I told them, and, and this part was, you know, they're like, okay, like, okay, this is weird. Um, but we, like, had a lot of fun picking the colored pencil this way, so I think we're on board, right? Like, <laughs> and then I told them, I said, if you ever feel stuck, like, you're just not getting a feeling at all, I said, take a minute to pause, because sometimes feelings need lots of space to come in. And I said, and if you still aren't getting a feeling, maybe it's because your um, artwork is talking through your mind instead of your feelings. And so I want you to put down whatever it is you think you want to put down first. Because what I realized was not not all kids, like, you know, are tapped into feelings that way. Like a lot of them are thinkers. (laughs) And the mind is an avenue to intuition as well, you know? So, (laughs) so I'm kind of not nervous, but I just have no idea how this process is going to go. Like I've kind of pulled this out of my butt last minute. I, um, but I figure, you know, this is, these steps are going to force the kids to stay in the moment and to really immerse themselves into the work without thinking about the product later. And I told them, I said, we don't know what your artwork's going to be. We're not even thinking about it. The artwork's going to tell us and we'll figure it out later. I was like, this is kind of cool, y'all, because you're going to get this mystery revealed to you later. And they were really, really into this. (laughs) Subsequently, what unfolded was probably one of the neatest art lessons of my career. Um... It is not um it is not intuitive for children to be silent in for long periods of time in a group uh, schools spend schools and teachers spend inordinate amounts of time and resources in managing kids talking. It's exhausting. it was one of my least favorite things about school, and I need it and kids need to be quiet in order for there to be focused learning, but it's not intuitive for them. They want to share, they want to communicate and being quiet for long periods of time isn't natural for them. And so I was always kind of in our class coming up with these systems to manage that. And this particular day, there was you know zero management needed. The kids were willfully silent of their own accord the entire class. And the focus was it was tremendous. I can't, I still can't honestly convey in words what it was like. There was an energy in the room that changed my perspective on teaching forever. And so we we have this amazing experience. Um, it Time flies by so incredibly fast um, to the point where I didn't even have them clean up. Um, and line up at the door to wait for their teacher I just let them draw until their teacher showed up and when she showed up all of them started oh no like they were so deeply immersed in in the art zone that that the jarring nature of having to turn that switch off and and go with her was uh, really uncomfortable and they were many of them were begging like please can we like take our artwork with us can we stay a little longer can I come back at lunchtime? I was I was blown away. Um, so we, so we line up at the door. I'm collecting things as they line up, and then this was this was the beginning of intuitive drawing for me. So then, as we're lining up, there's this little girl, and her name was Hannah. I'll never forget her because she was so cool. Like her parents were so cool. They were like older parents. Um, and they were both like bikers and they would wear leather and had lots of tattoos, but like really gentle energy. Um, and Hannah was always telling me these stories like, um, that she saw spirits and, and auras and she had this dream of being a sushi, a sushi chef and an artist (laughs) at the same time. Uh, like what eight year old wants to be a sushi chef? Like at least not in a midwestern, mostly predominantly white suburb of Cleveland, right? Like it was so. <laughs> she was cool. I love this girl, and so we're lining up at the door, and we had just spent you know this whole class talking about process and product, and Hannah looks at me and she goes, "Miss Bradley, I think I figured something out." She goes, "Um." I don't, you know, I think you're right. I don't think the the drawing was the product. I think we were the product because I feel really good right now. And all of the kids were like, yeah. (laughs) And I have to tell you that story because I tell people in classes all the time, you are the product. And that came from an eight-year-old's freaking mouth. That gives, I mean... This story gives me hope for the planet. Like I, maybe that's a dramatic things to, thing to say, but um, children are so wise and they're full of so much. And I, I went and sat back down at my desk and I realized this process was so natural for them. It was so natural because they're wired that way. Little kids are wired that way. All of us have been wired that way. We're all born with this propensity to make things as a tool to remake ourselves, to center ourselves, to come home to ourselves, to channel something through us from another realm, to communicate and commune with objects in a spiritual way. We're wired to do this. It was so easy for them. The thing, the thing is, the challenge is, is to not make, take it out of them, <laughs> right? And I was kind of chuckling to myself because I had created this whole lesson expecting that I was going to teach kids how to intuitively draw and I, and I got totally schooled, right? Like they already knew how <laughs> they were masters at it. Just like these monks, they were so, they just needed someone to create a space for them to do it, <sighs> So I began to really perseverate on this idea. Like I kept thinking, okay, how can I transform this into, you know, like a style? And I realized that the reason that this style of teaching was so enjoyable for me was because this was how I made artwork too. Um I would I would discover this much later. You know, when I was a school teacher, I was um still firmly rooted in lots of representational, classical styles of art making that I had learned in, in high school and my undergrad. I wouldn't return to my roots of intuitive drawing until I was 30. And I've talked about that um I think in the first episode of Secret Sauce, that my homecoming to myself and to my art style was like way later in life you know that I had been indoctrinated just like so many other artists that intuitive styles of making were less serious art you know that that they were fun and they were cute right but like serious artists do things a certain way and so you know I was I was really still firmly rooted in that mindset um my in my personal work but this experience with these kids woke me up like something woke up in my soul. And, you know, when I kind of reclaimed my my personal intuitive style at age 30, I became obsessed with teaching this. You know, the, the people just, people didn't even need a teacher necessarily. They just needed a space to reclaim it because we're all, we were all born doing it. Like, whether you identify as an artist as a five or six or seven year old or not, you are wired to make stuff intuitively, and at some point, you were educated out of that capacity, but it never goes away. And I began incorporating intuitive styles of drawing into um, my adult classes at Laguna Gloria here in Austin, and that was that was eye opening. It was not natural anymore. For those people. Um, In fact it was a little uncomfortable at first and if I'm being honest there's a a decent number of people that just really don't like that style of drawing at all anymore because it's not going to render at at least not immediately. It's not going to immediately render something that you can brag about Uh, Maybe it will, but it's not guaranteed to. Not like a realistic drawing class where you might spend months learning how to representationally draw a bowl of apples. You know, that can feel really rewarding to a lot of people who have really fallen in love with analytical styles of learning and making. And so intuitive drawing wasn't for everybody and that was 100% okay. But for the people that had been missing that spiritual connection to themselves like not even to like any religious connotations of spirit here like I'm just talking about a spiritual connection to your inner self that's what art would do for so many kids and and getting adults back into that space was so rewarding and I thought that my education around intuitive drawing kind of like had commit like not commenced. I'm sorry. I had kind of like, you know, was sort of like wrapping itself up, right? Like that I'd learned all this stuff and that um I was ready to like, you know, do like a whole curricula on it and like create, you know, um classes on it. You know, this was 5 or 6 years ago. And then I got and then I got schooled a little bit. Um and this is what happened. So um In 2014, um, I had been about a year out of grad school, and I was feeling incredibly lost and incredibly frustrated. And part of the reason was that I had finished grad school, and I knew in my heart of hearts that I didn't want to go back to public school art teaching, but I had just (laughs) invested in two degrees in art education. And what was I, you know, going to do with my life? And, uh, I was really scared and I don't know if y'all have ever had this happen where like, there's a question mark in your life and you'll have this train of thought. This was my train of thought. I've got to figure this out now. Like I've got to funnel all my energy into figuring this out because if I don't X, X, XYZ bad things are going to happen can you relate cuz i think everyone does this and it feels like the right thing to do right like oh there's this question mark in my life i'm going to funnel all my energy into figuring it out and in so doing i actually was like hindering myself even more like i was cr- like preventing myself from accessing the wisdom that i needed and i got frustrated and i um have talked about this in the past but i periodically will go see intuitives or mediums, um, to, to get assistance or help. Um, I'm I'm all for counseling by the way, but like, there's something about going to somebody (laughs) in an intuitive capacity that's completely different. And so I went to this incredibly talented medium. She's here in Austin, um, you know, seven years ago now. And I, and I said, Hey, look, like, I feel like I'm supposed to do something. Like I get this like really na- nagging feeling like that I'm supposed to do something really big with my work, like in my profession. And the more that I try to see it and access it, the the more elusive it is. And I just was wondering if you could give me clarity. You're a medium, like do your thing, <laughs> you know? And she looks at me and she says, okay, she goes, this is, this is what's going on. She goes, you're, she was humans aren't linear. And I was like, what? what, what does this have to do with my question? <laughs> she says, no, 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 bear with me. She said, humans experience the world in a linear way. She goes, you're born and then you die. And there's a line in between and you experience things one after another, after another. She goes, but your actual being is not linear it's multi-dimensional she goes this is something Einstein talked about she goes and the metaphor I like to use with clients is that it's a video game and all of the options for all of the characters and all of the journeys are baked into the game but you only experience one at a time when you play the game and I was like oh yeah that's a good metaphor I like that <laughs> And she said, so I, she goes, this is what I think is happening. She goes, and people do this all the time, especially when they're trying to make something in their life. She goes, because you're expansive, because you're multidimensional, she's like, there's part of you that is literally able to tell what you're going to do 20, 30, 40 years from now. She goes, there is, and it's getting you really excited and you're trying to make it happen now she goes you're trying to make step z happen when you're on step a and that's not possible and it's pissing you off she goes but let that comfort you that you're not making this up that you that something really cool is waiting for you but that if you want to make it happen now you will continue to be frustrated be here now meditate um, focus on being in the moment and I, (laughs) i had this dual experience when she said this to me, first of total awe, because this just hit the nail on the head of my experience in a way that I wasn't expecting. Like I've never heard the world described that way. I've never heard my experience described that way. And yeah, on this like very visceral level, I felt like she was just right. (laughs) And Uh, I was really pissed. I was like, dang it, like, why do all of these, you know, sort of spiritual journeys I go on always end up telling me to be in the moment? (laughs) You know, and I went back and I reflected on this and I realized that what was happening in my life was almost identical to what my students were experiencing in intuitive drawing, right? Like, We've all been taught by modern education systems, um, by the culture, that life is a product. That it's about what you can get and what you can achieve, right? And so we all get into a trap of, I want to make this thing, and the thing is step Z. And I'm going to focus on the step Z until I get it. <laughs> and and then weirdly it eludes us over and over and over. And that's really frustrating because we've been taught that's the way to do it. And why isn't this working? And what this medium was telling me is that making stuff even in life doesn't work that way. What she was literally telling me was not was to, to live my life in the same way I was teaching my students to draw. What feels good right? Now, what is your first mark gonna be? Um, we don't know what the artwork's gonna be later. We know it's gonna be cool, we can kind of feel what it's gonna be, but if we try to grasp it, we're just gonna piss ourselves off and we're gonna be really frustrated. So what is the first mark? And then we're gonna sit and we're gonna look at that thing and we're gonna reflect on it and we're gonna let it talk to us, and in that space, we're gonna get an answer. This, you know, it would feel really good next to that pink dot, another pink dot, but maybe magenta this time, (laughs) right? That sounds so simple. And yet she was kind of saying like, that's the way to do it. That's the way to live. (laughs) I think, you know, I think, you know, I'm sure some people are listening to this and they're like, oh, that's beautiful. I love that. And also, you know, like there's oil changes and children need to go to the babysitter and I have a grocery list and I can't just like feel my way through the day all the time. Like um I I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, that's why this episode started with the affirmation that logic and analysis are not the devil either. <laughs> that we need the whole of the experience. You know, but I would argue that we've gotten so detached from our intuitive styles of living and we focus so much on the anal- analytical styles of living. You know, I would argue that that's part of what's gotten us to this space and time and the planet that feels decidedly not okay. That there's something that's been wanting to come through and it can't because we're so focused on our perceived idea of step z right i have to make a lot of money so any of the intuitive spiritual things that my soul is trying to tell me are just going to have to sit the fuck down right or i really want to make a drawing of a of a giraffe i don't even know why that popped into my head (laughs) and any ideas that try to come through me that aren't a giraffe i'm going to ignore And then when this giraffe ends up being really crunchy and frustrating, I'm going to convince myself I'm not an artist. I'm going to give up. Or society says that being a famous celebrity that makes a lot of money is the way to go. And so I'm going to fixate on that. And anything that tries to come through me that's contrary to that, I'm going to ignore And then if I don't become a famous celebrity, I'm going to feel like I'm not good at living. And then I'm not good at, you know, finding and realizing a dream. Right? Um, It's not to say don't have goals. (laughs) It's not to say that wanting to be famous is wrong. It's saying that as we're going through the process, the intuition is going to get us there faster. The analytical mind, because the intuition is able to tap into something more expansive in the video game. (laughs) I love this idea. I think this is so cool. Um, and I'm I'm like very aware, even as I'm recording this, how limiting my metaphors and stories are to describe this experience. Like, the more that I teach intuitive drawing, the more and the more feedback I get from adults on this experience, the 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 more it supersedes words. Like they'll they'll finish a session with me and they'll just like be like, I don't even know what to say. Like this just feels so amazing, yeah, yeah. It does. It feels so good to make things in communion with your inner spirit. And if you want to take it a step further with the inner spirit of the world and possibly other spirits and other dimensions, like if you want to keep going with it, you can, but at at its very foundation, making a life and making art with your inner self is what we're here to do. And this is why I fully believe when like Jade, you know, Jade last week in her, conversation with me when she said, artists are going to save the world. This is part of my perspective on why she's right. (laughs) That learning to create art intuitively is an amazing model for learning to create a life intuitively. And learning to create a life intuitively, when enough people do that, will lead to a reclamation of our planet <laughs> that we will get to bring forth what the planet wants not just what we want will be when you make things intuitively you're creating with your inner self and if you don't think your inner self is not connected with what the inner soul of the world wants you know that's that's something science has already proven by the way like You you can just delve into like general physics and quantum theory and quantum entanglement and just Google it. (laughs) We're connected with the earth deeply, intuitively. And if we start listening to our intuition, when we make stuff on a piece of paper, can that help us to intuitively make stuff when we go out into our life? And can that help us make stuff in communion with the planet better? I I think so. I think art's going to save the world in this way, 100%. And I'm not totally sure if the way that I've explained it makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm still really new to trying to put words and stories to this idea. But I think it's, you know, I think I'm getting close. And I'm hoping that we're parts of it that resonated with your experience. Because I've noticed that a lot of artists... Um, are really on board with this idea even the ones that love representational drawing and painting and sculpting even the ones that are incredibly technical and incredibly realistic they they brush up against their spirit and intuition all the time they will walk away from a canvas after four hours of making and they feel like magic came through them it doesn't happen all the time but it happens enough that Most artists don't find this idea objectionable in the least. It's just that we happen to live in a culture that doesn't explicitly talk about it as much as it should yet. We make things intuitively, whether it's art or a life or a family or friendships or doing our hair, tinkering on a car, talking to the cashier at Target, you, you you can drop in to your intuition and your empathy when you talk to people and, a, and a, a simple interaction with a cashier at Target can become an artwork, depending on how you approach it. Absolutely it can. This is how art can change the world. I mean, one of many ways, <laughs> but one of the ways that I'm very excited about. And anyway. I have to go because I have an appointment that I am one minute late for. Isn't that like a really, um, unsexy way to end (laughs) this episode, like not intuitive at all. This is, this is the reality of the world we live in, that the world we live in is structured analytically. Most of the time I have a meeting and I'm late for it. I gotta go. Right? Like, and um, if I can carve out 10 minutes to drop into my intuition throughout, the, on and off throughout the day, um, transformation is possible in my art and in my life. And this is the focus of intuitive drawing. If if this um, podcast episode resonates with you, I highly recommend checking out intuitive drawing. Um, it's at jbarelli.com. I will put the link in the show notes if you want to register. Um, the material will be yours forever. And if you decide that you want to join the Heart School Network, that link is also in the show notes. Um, People that are subscribers to my newsletter and subscribers to the Heart School get a monthly discount code for classes every month, Um, as well as free art offerings, because I know that not everyone has a budget for making art stuff. And if you want art classes that are completely free to you, check out the art school, check out the newsletter. I love y'all. Peace.